If you have a worship folder, in your worship folder is, I should look and make sure. Yes, there's an outline with some verses for you to follow along with. Um, we're, we're actually, it feels like I've been forever since I've been up here. We were outside last week. Um, and um, we're in a series, and in the summer, our series are kind of like, we do some, and then we do some other things, and we do that, and we do some other things. There's always a bunch going on in the summer. So we're actually in part five, so I want to do a real quick recap for you so that you know where you're at, bring you up to speed. Um, like I said, this is week five, and in the very first week, I talked to you about this, that this whole series is how to deal with how you feel. Because we all have feelings, we all have emotions, we all have things that, that come in. How, how do we deal with that? How can we make the right choices? And I told you first week to remember this. My thoughts, in my head, my thoughts cause my feelings. I have these feelings because of all the stuff that I put in there, because of all the stuff that's going around in my head. My thoughts cause my feelings. Then my feelings lead to intentions. My intentions become actions. My actions form habits. My habits create a lifestyle, and my lifestyle will solidify my legacy. All of that starts right here in our heads. Very important. Proverbs 23.7 says this, For as the thoughts of his heart are, so is he. It says that the Good News Translation puts it like this, What he thinks is what he really is. So it doesn't necessarily matter what we're trying to pretend to everybody else, what we're trying to show to everybody else. It's what's going on in our heads, what we're thinking. And so this, this series has been about how to deal with that, how to deal with how we feel and, and the fact that things are a choice because we can't necessarily choose our feelings, but we can choose the thoughts that create the feelings. So first week, if you missed any of these other four, they're all online. You can listen to them. Go to iloveourchurch.com. Go to iTunes, journeyinourchurch.com. They're all free. They're all online there. The first one was choosing hope when you feel hopeless. The second week, we talked about compassion and how you can choose compassion when you feel contempt. When you feel a certain way towards other people that's not good, you can choose compassion. We talked third week about choosing humility when you feel like it's all about you. And we talked the fourth week about choosing gratitude when you feel unsatisfied. This week, we're going to talk about choosing joy. Choosing joy when you feel down and out. About 10% of Americans, it's a lot of people, 10% of Americans struggle with something called SAD, Seasonal Affective Disorder. Um, even if they're not technically all depressed, many of us struggle with being down when the Minnesota sun, you know, goes on vacation for weeks at a time, disappears. We don't see that. Um, places like Alaska that deal with that seasonally far more than we do have a huge issue with that. And, and it is a big deal. Many more people struggle with various kinds of depression. I, I, I know this personal experience, but depression itself isn't a sin. It can be the result of all kinds of physical factors, physical factors that are often beyond our control. And you need to know this, you're never alone in it. Even if you feel that way, you're never alone in it. And even when you feel depressed, hear this, you can still choose joy. 
So we're going to talk about how to choose joy in spite of feelings of sadness that we might have. And as with all the other messages in this series, the model for this is Jesus. So we're going to look at a couple verses from Hebrews chapter 12, um, verses 1 and 2. And it starts like this. Therefore, and now I have to stop, because whenever you're reading the Bible and it says therefore, you're supposed to stop and see what it's there for. This is the therefore is Hebrews chapter 11. Not going to get into all that today. You might want to go back and read that. Hebrews chapter 11 has been called the great hall of faith because it talks about some people who did some, some very amazing things, some very scary things, some very hard things, but all of them did it by faith that they accomplished what they accomplished, not because of themselves, not because they were good, but they did it by faith. And it talks about all these people that came before us and did all these things by faith. And it says, therefore, on that basis, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith. <coughs> Excuse me. It's water, just so you know. Um, I have to say, I've, I've changed the way I think on this particular passage. I used to think for a long time, I used to think a certain way on it about what it was saying and I've kind of changed and what it did is it messed up one of my favorite illustrations. I'm going to share that illustration with you just because it's even, it's still possible but it it messes it up. But here's the thing. Out east there was a, a football coach at college and good coach and he had a kid on his um, roster who was known as the most dependable of all the people that he had. He was the first one to practice. He was the last one to leave. He would help take stuff you know, apart, put it away, clean up stuff. He would do, always go the extra mile. And he worked extremely hard. He never played. And the reason was he, he sucked at football. <laughs> he, just wasn't, he didn't play very well, but, but he had a lot of enthusiasm. He also had a very, very amazing relationship with his dad. And the coach would see him and his dad often on the college campus when his dad would come visit. And he would always see them walking across campus arm in arm. He's always arm in arm with his dad walking across the college campus. And they knew he had this great relationship with his dad. Um, uh, the kid's senior year, uh, the coach got word that the, 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 his student, his, his, the player on his team, um, his dad passed away, and nobody had told the kid yet. And the coach said, well, I probably have the best relationship to him than anybody here, with him than anybody here, so I'll tell him. And so he gets with him, student, he sits down, and he says, I have some bad news for you. Your dad has passed away. And, of course, the kid is heartbroken. The kid's devastated. Um, but he looks at the coach, and he says, I, I have a favor. And the coach said, what? Ask. He said, you know, I've never played. Um, he says, I, I, and I know why, he said, I've never played, but um, in, in honor of my dad, he said, I, I'd like you to put me in in this, this last game, just, just for one play, just put me in for one play. And the coach is like, oh, I really don't want to do that, it's kind of an important game, but I can't not do that, and so he puts the kid in at the beginning of the game for this play, and the kid is amazing. He does everything, not only right, he does it exceptionally. And the coach leaves him in the entire game, plays this amazing game. At the end of the game, they're talking, and the coach says, I, I got to ask. He says, 
all these years, he said, whenever you played, it was never like that. You got to tell me what changed, what happened. He said, you know, my dad passed away. The guy said, yeah. He said, my dad was blind. This is the first time he ever saw me play. Isn't that a good illustration? Except now I'm not sure that's what the passage means. <laughs> and one of the reasons is it's always had this thing in the back of my mind where it's been a little creepy. It's like my Aunt Ruth, for instance. She was the crazy one in the family. We loved my Aunt Ruth, but she passed away a couple years ago. And, I, and it's like, if my Aunt Ruth was watching everything I did, that might be a little creepy to me. Here's, here's how I'm changing in this just a little bit. The cloud of witnesses, the crowd of witnesses, depending on your translation, is mentioned here in Hebrews 12.1. It might refer to these people as spectators in the race. And that's the picture I always had. They're in the grandstands. They've already finished. They're in the grandstands cheering, you know, the rest of us on. But it actually seems to imply that they're the ones who are testifying. It says this great cloud of witnesses. They're the ones who are testifying either by what they say or by what they have done regarding the race they themselves have won. Their lives are the witness. They are the testimony to the life of faith. And it's not that they're watching us, it's that we're watching them and see what they've done and see what the life of faith can do. So you can go either direction with that. If you want my Aunt Ruth watching you, that's perfectly okay. No problem with that. Here's what it says, since therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to this life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. And that's important to note that. Every word is important. I'm not supposed to run your race. You're not supposed to run my race. You're not going to run my race well. I'm not going to run your race well. That's hard to say, your race well. It says, we run with endurance the race God has set before us. So that's what we do, and here's how we do it. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. It's all about faith, because without faith, it's impossible to please God. No matter what you do, you don't please him unless it's by faith. That's what it says. So we live this life of faith. We run with endurance by keeping our eyes on Jesus, who is the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. And here's the the one I want to focus on. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and now he's seated in a place of honor beside God's throne. So we keep our eyes on Jesus. This is the one who, because of the joy that was ahead of him, awaiting, he endured the cross. That is mind-blowing to me. That I, I, I have just a, a glimmer and a glimpse of what it took on that cross and what Jesus went through. And it says, for the joy, he endured the cross. Not the joy of the cross, but the joy that was coming. So what do we learn from Jesus? We're going to look at four things, three things that we kind of learn from Jesus and then kind of a yes, but how. But we're going to look at three things. What do we learn from Jesus in this, in this passage? Here's the first thing. If you're taking notes, God's eternal plan for all his children is joy forever. 
God's eternal plan for all his children is joy forever. Overwhelmingly, the picture that God gives us in his word of eternity for his family is one of joy and blessing without obstacles or limitations. Now, that doesn't mean that joy is the plan for absolutely everybody. It's joy for his family in eternity. The only way you become part of God's family is get adopted into his family, and that's through Jesus. You're coming to Jesus and saying, I believe what you did on the cross was for me. I'm the one who deserved it, and you're the one who took the penalty. And I'm receiving you as my Savior by faith. I don't understand all that, Jesus, but I'm placing my faith and trust in you that that's what you did for me. And it says when we receive him in John 1, we become children of God. We enter into his family, and his family, he wants the joy and the blessing without obstacles, without limitations, without the problems. Heaven in eternity is a place of no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain. And it's worth waiting for. That's amazing. One of the reasons we struggle here for joy is that we're always grabbing for it instead of waiting for it. We're always looking at, I want it now. And so we grab for something that we think will give us joy, and sometimes it gives us a little bit of happiness, but not for long. There's always a price to pay. I have a feeling most of us in here could tell a story about how we made the wrong choice because we wanted joy, and we got maybe a teeny bit of happiness, but what it caused after that was way worse. That's what we do. We too often go for some quick emotional high instead of something that's eternal. So God's eternal plan for all his children is joy forever. That's good news. The second thing is even better. It's not even better. It's just as good. We can experience eternal joy here and now. Some of you think, well, of course. Some of you think, I don't think that's possible. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know what I'm going through. But we can experience eternal joy here and now. It's part of walking... We've talked about this, walking in our heavenly citizenship in this life. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. It's the now and the not yet. We have a citizenship in heaven if we're children of God. If we claim Jesus as Savior, we go to heaven someday. That's our home. That's where I'm a citizen of. I'm just wandering around this place waiting to get there. And I'm going to take as many people as I can with me. That's my plan. But the Bible also says I'm a citizen of heaven today. And it's part of that whole back and forth thing. See, when you were born again into God's family, if you were, you immediately receive a down payment, like earnest money of your eternal inheritance that's coming in the form of the Holy Spirit, as well as membership into God's family. That's what we get the moment we're saved. Eternal life isn't just a state of being that we're going to enjoy after death, though. It's not just pie in the sky in the sweet by and by. There's more to it than that. Eternal life is a quality of life that's supposed to begin the moment we start following Jesus. The joy, that's what's supposed to be there. So we can experience eternal joy here and now. And here's the third thing. We live in a world with an enemy that seeks to steal our joy. No nudging the person beside you. I'm not talking about that enemy. We have an enemy who is trying to steal our joy. You wonder sometimes why you don't have the joy you should. You're going to find out. 
because from at least three angles, three different angles and directions, our experience of joy is challenged. It's stolen from us. And I can't go into great detail. We don't have the time. It's kind of be like a flyover today. We're going to go into this more later. There's three things, three different angles that all this comes at us. Here's the first one. The world. The world. Now, before I go on with that, I have to say I struggled with this a little bit. Because uh, I've told most of you in my quiet time with God, in my time that I'm experiencing His presence and spending time with Him, I've spent this year, I've went through First um, Second Peter, and I'm in First John now, and I'm reading in First John. I'm at the point where it says, um, do not love the world or anything in the world. It goes on to explain that, which I'll get to in a moment. But the moment I read that, it's like, wait a minute. Do not love the world. I've read that a million times, but it dawned on me. You know what the most famous verse in the whole Bible is? John 3.16. For God so loved the world. And I'm like, wait a minute. God loved the world so much, he gave his life. He gave his one and only son to die for us. And then, and that's in John. The same guy is writing 1 John, and he says, don't love the world. So I'm thinking, okay, here's what has to be going on. There's a different Greek word for world in those two verses, right? No. Same word. Okay, there's a different word for love in those verses, because there's at least three different words for love in the Bible. Same word. Agape, the the highest form of love. So in one verse, John is writing and saying what Jesus said, that God loved the world so much He gave His one and only Son. And then John writes in 1 John, don't love the world. So I, I struggled with it a little bit. And here's what I've come up with. We know that you can use the same word to mean different things. And I tried to come up with an example that wasn't just cheesy, that really was real and made sense. So here, here, here's what I came up with for the moment. This might change. Tonight, you know what's going to happen tonight? It's going to get dark. It's the weather report. Scattered or dark tonight. Scattered light throughout the day tomorrow. That's about as close as they can get and be correct. If I said it's going to be dark tonight, or if I turned off the lights in here, it would be dark. Everybody would understand what that meant. It means it's dark. Absence of light. Get it. But if I said... That person has a real darkness in them. Or yesterday was a really dark day for me. You would understand that I was talking about something different. I'm using the same word, but I'm talking about something different when I say that. That's what's going on here. Same word, but it means more than one thing. How do we know what it means? By the context. If I said it's going to be dark tonight, it doesn't mean, oh, it's going to be horrible tonight. It just means it's going to be dark tonight. But when I talk about the darkness in someone's soul, you see the difference. The word cosmos, which means, which is translated world in both those cases, it can mean more than one thing. In John 3.16, God so loved the world. Do you know what it means? People! I'm not saying people. I'm saying it means people. He loves people. That's one of the meanings of it. In 1 John, when he says, don't love the world, he's not saying don't love people because the great commandment is love people. 
Love God and love people. In 1 John, when he says don't love the world, he's not talking about the people. He's talking about the system of this world. The, the, the ordered system of this world, the system of thinking in this world that operates around us. That's the cosmos in that context. And he's not saying don't love the people. We're supposed to love the people. He's saying don't love that system that is the world that's taken us the wrong direction. That's what he's saying. It excludes God from its thinking. Don't love that system because the world actually creates conditions for your joy. It says, for instance, you can be happy if you experience enough physical pleasure. That's the world's lie. That if you experience it, and so people go for it. Go for all the gusto because I want to be happy. The world also says you can be happy if you get enough things. Life does not consist in the abundance of things. You've heard me say this. He who dies with the most toys still dies. (laughs) And somebody else gets his toys. So if you were counting on that for happiness, you counted on the wrong thing. The world also says you can be happy if you're popular enough. You get enough people to like you. I posted that on Instagram and only two people liked it. And that's what you're deriving your happiness from. Other people's approval. Those three things. It actually uses those three things in 1 John when he says don't love the world or anything in the world because everything that's in the world and then he tells us everything that's in the world. Not the people, but everything that's in that system that's against God. He calls it the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Those three things. And what's interesting is that's the way that we are attacked on a regular basis. It started way back in the Garden of Eden. When when Satan, in the form of that serpent, tempted Eve, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. She saw the food, she saw the fruit that it was good for food, that it was pleasing to the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and it was very desirable to make one wise. It's like she's already got the pride of life and there's only one other person on the planet and she's still struggling with it. Interesting, thousands of years later, same person is tempting somebody else by the name of Jesus. Had spent 40 days in the wilderness. It says afterwards he was hungry. It's like, do you think? (laughs) He didn't eat for 40 days. That's when Satan came to him to tempt him. You know what he tempted him with? Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. He said, you know, I know you're hungry. You haven't eaten in 40 days. How about this? You could command these stones to be made into bread. And you know what? He could have. But that was not God's plan. He quoted scripture to him, man shall not live by bread alone. The next temptation comes and he says, um, let me do this. Let me show you all the kingdoms of the world. And so he took him to a high place, showed him all the kingdoms of the world, lust of the eyes. Here's everything. He said, you know what? That can be yours if you'll bow down and worship me. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes. Jesus said, nope, you worship God only. The third area that Satan tempted him was he took him up to the the highest peak, the pinnacle of the temple, and all these people are way down there. And he said, you know what? If you jump off, 
you know that the angels are going to catch you and you're going to float down and everybody's going to go, whoa, and they're going to recognize you're the Messiah from God and you're going to be able to do what you need to do without going through all that suffering. And Jesus knew that that wasn't the way. He knew that his plan, God's plan, was not for Jesus to float down and everybody to go, ooh, ah. That wasn't the plan. That was the boastful pride of life that Satan was tempting him with. He tempts you the same way. I mean, not to jump off the pinnacle of the temple. That would just be stupid. But with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And he's still doing that. That's what's in the world. That's, that system. Remember, we are not supposed to love the world, but we're supposed to love the world. We love the people in the world. We don't love that system that's against God. So the first thing is the world. The second thing is actually alluded to in the first, and that's the flesh. This is all from Ephesians. They've been talking about this for like 2,000 years. This is how they categorize it. First the world, then the flesh. The flesh is the thing that's us. That's this, this thing that we have. We get this new nature if we come to Jesus, but we still have this old nature that there's this struggle with, and this flesh that we have drags us down into despair and discouragement. That's what it does. See, our bodies are part of this whole broken world and they experience fatigue and they experience mental illness. And I want to make a side note for just a minute. This big deal, this is free, not part of the message. I understand depression. My, my, my parents, I... I, I long story, get into it some other time. Mental health and mental illness is a huge thing. I went to, when, you know that a few weeks ago I got to go with uh, a bunch of people out to um, Saddleback to the Purpose Driven Church Conference and um, Rick Warren, pastor there, his wife Kay, a few years ago, their son Matthew at the age of 28 committed suicide because he struggled his whole life with depression. They, they began um, looking into the whole mental illness thing, studying it. It's like they've dealt with it his whole life. But they just, they, they, she, as I, I'm standing there listening to her and she's reading these documents to us and you can see the tears in her eyes and she says, we didn't know any of these things and all these things were out there. We didn't know any of this. And so they're, they're getting some things going and they're working on some things and what they're doing is working and, and um, it really it lit a fire under me and I am so excited to, to know that, that we're going to be doing something in this and here's why. Half, half of all adults in the U.S. will develop mental illness of some kind in their lifetime. Half. That's according to the CDC. 60 million Americans, that's one in four, experience mental illness in a given year. One in four. Here's the hardest one for me. One in ten children lives with a serious mental or emotional disorder. Here's the problem. The problem is if we're talking after church and I said, you know, I hurt my arm, you know, my rotator cuff thing is bad and I hurt my arm, you'd ask me what I was doing about it. 
I'd tell you what I was doing about it. And you may even question me in the days and weeks to come and ask me how that's going and am I still doing that treatment? You know, is it still working? Is it feeling any better? And that's what would happen if you came up to me and I said, you know, I'm having this heart problem went into the doctor and here's what they said. You would ask me questions about it. You'd stand there and talk to me about it. And you would probably check up on me and ask me later. You see me in a couple weeks, say, how's that heart thing going? You know, are you doing this? And, And you would ask those questions. If we're having that conversation after church and in the quietness of that conversation with you and me, I said, you know, I I need to tell you that I am struggling with a mental illness. Your response would not be the same. You would not say, well, what, you know, what are you doing about that? What are you? And you wouldn't come up to me the next week and you'd say, how's that going? How's the treatment going? You know what you would probably do? You would find a really quick way to exit because that's what we do. And that's wrong. We as a church need to be at the forefront of getting rid of that stigma. If I have a headache, I can take an aspirin and nobody thinks twice. If I have a broken arm, I can get a cast and nobody thinks twice. If I have a mental illness and I get treatment for it, nobody knows what to say. There's a stigma that should not be there. And I believe the thing that's going to eliminate that stigma is the church. And so we're going to be in this area at the forefront of that. And we're going to do things to help. That doesn't mean we can solve everybody's problem. Not everything gets solved. Sometimes we just learn coping mechanisms to get through life. Believe me, I I know. Sometimes we just learn what to do to get through life. But we at the church want to be at the forefront of this. We have become a safe place and a welcoming place because of our CR ministry for people who are struggling with hurts, habits, and hang-ups. And we want to be the same thing for people who are struggling with mental illness, for people who have kids struggling with mental illness, for people who have parents who are struggling with mental illness. You have a a sibling that's struggling with that, a friend that's struggling with that. What do I do? How do I say that? We as a church need to have the answer. When, when we see that one in four adults, 60 million Americans will struggle with something this year, it's not just a little thing. It's a big deal. The flesh that we have is part of this broken world. And we need to love people regardless of what they're going through. So we have an enemy that's the world. We have an that was free by the way, not part of the sermon, just <laughs> it's coming and I'm excited. Okay? So So we have the world, we have the flesh, and the third thing is the devil. I used to say in college, you know, I don't have to worry too much about the world. I don't have to worry at all about the devil. I got enough flesh to keep me in trouble for the rest of my life. <laughs> But here's the thing. Our enemy Satan constantly accuses, tempts us, attacks us, and and tries to distract us. That's his biggest thing, is he just wants to distract you so that you're not looking at the right thing, so that you're looking at something that doesn't matter for eternity, and that's where your focus is, and that's what he tries to do is distract us. I know a lot of people say, Satan never bothers me, and I say, I know. You know why? You're not doing anything. He doesn't have to bother you. The minute you start doing something by faith and doing something for the kingdom, he's going to show up. 
We have the world, the flesh, and the devil. Here's what John 10.10 says. I like it in the Amplified Translation. The thief comes, that's our enemy, the thief comes only in order to steal and kill and destroy. All the things you think are good things that the enemy is putting before you, they are to steal, kill, and destroy you. He just disguises them really well. Jesus said, I came that they may have and enjoy life. And here's the thing. Have it in abundance to the full till it overflows. That's the kind of life he wants for us. Is heaven going to be amazing? Yes. So can now. He wants us to have abundant life. And here's the thing. It doesn't mean he comes in and fixes all your problems. It doesn't mean he comes in and makes your situation good all of a sudden. It means in the middle of that, he comes in to give you abundant life. Then in the middle of what you're going through, you can have joy. And that's where 1 Peter 3.15 comes in, where it says, always be ready to give an answer for the hope that's in you. So when people come to you and they say, you got joy, you got hope, but I know what you're going through. What's up with that? You can say, let me tell you what's up with that. His name's Jesus. And you can share that with them. Here's the fourth thing. This is kind of the, the, the YBH, the yes, but how? How do we choose this? How do we get joy? Here's number four. We fight. It's tough. We fight for joy. And here's how. By resting, by resting. Resting in the hope that King Jesus reigns. It's not... It's not about working your way into the joy. Remember, you can't work your way into a feeling. That's not how it works. We change the way we think. We start focusing on the right things and change the way we think. And we rest in the hope that Jesus reigns. So it's not by working our way into feeling it. That will never work. You find joy by affirming truth. That's how you find joy. We find joy by discovering and agreeing with this is truth. What's truth? God's word is truth. When we affirm that truth, we can find joy. You know, joy is not discovered within. We don't look inside and find joy. Joy is received from God. Do you know that? It's not something you can muster up. It comes from him. Romans 15, 13 says this. I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Because we have that relationship with him, we focus on him, we receive it from him. He says he's going to fill us completely with joy and peace. Why? Because we trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. You can have that life that you're looking for. It doesn't mean everything changes and everything gets good. It doesn't happen like that for most of us. But that doesn't mean we can't live lives of joy that are abundant lives, even though the stuff around us is not so great. It tells us joy is even a fruit of the Spirit. Go home and read Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit. That means here's what the Spirit does in the lives of believers who are close to Jesus. Here's what it does. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If those are things you want in your life, you don't get those by mustering up the strength to have them. We get those by getting closer to God. 
and the spirit that he gave us, that's the fruit. That's not your fruit. That's the spirit's fruit in your life. And one of them is joy. You see, joy comes from him. Joy is received. It's very difficult to get. You know how you get it? You ask for it. Imagine that. John 16, 14. Here's what Jesus said. Ask. He said this all the time. You know, you don't have because you don't ask. Ask using my name. That means his authority, his power, who he is. You have that relationship with him. It's not just like you're using some magic thing and I say, in Jesus' name, everything, you know, that's not how it works. It's because I have a relationship with him and I'm using his authority and his power. And he said, ask using my name and you will receive and you will have abundant joy. He didn't say, and I'll take away all your problems. He said, you will have abundant joy. Do you want joy? You have to ask. It only comes from him. It does not come from the world. It does not come from the flesh. It certainly does not come from the devil. It comes only from him. And here's the final thing. Possibly the most practical and important. We find joy in God's presence. We find joy in God's presence. How do I get into God's presence? Well, you could come to my house and sit in a green chair by the front window. (laughs) It works for me. Every day, I sit down with his word. I'm reading it. I'm studying it. I'm memorizing it. I'm applying it. I'm trying to grasp his word. And I'm talking to him, and he's talking to me over coffee every morning. Jesus, coffee, repeat. The important thing is not the coffee. It's the Jesus and the repeat, okay? The coffee just helps a little bit in the morning. Forty-four years. I've done that. Not in that chair. That chair's not that old. I've spent time with Jesus. And here's the thing. Um, my family, you know, if I, if I miss a day, I know it. I, I, I can feel it if I miss a day. If I miss a couple days... Julie knows it. I don't even have to tell her. If I miss more than three or four days, you probably know it. Because here's what I've learned. After 44 years of walking with him, I would think that the longer I walk with him, the less time I have to spend with him. And it's the exact opposite of that. The longer I walk with him, the more time I have to spend with him. Or I screw up. I have to get into his presence. I have to hear him. I have to talk to him. I have to spend that time with him. And when I don't, I don't have the joy. I don't have the power. It's only in his presence. Here's what Psalm 1611 says. You make known to me the path of life. That means what I'm going to be doing in this life. My purpose The path you have for me, that only comes from God. You don't make it up on your own. It comes from Him. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. It doesn't mean in His presence you can be a little happy. It means in His presence, there is fullness of joy at your right hand, our pleasures forevermore. That's not just in eternity. That can start now. It only comes from being in God's presence, and that only comes through a relationship with Jesus. So if you've already made that decision, 
If you've already turned your life over to Jesus and said, I'm a sinner, I'm broken, I know what you did on the cross was not to pay for your sin, it was to pay for mine. If you've already done that, then you need to get into his presence more and ask for the joy. Spend the time with him. You say, I don't have time. Yes, you do. Jesus had the busiest schedule of anybody in the universe. He had everything he had to do. He only had three and a half years to do it, and he spent time with God every single day. You can too. If you don't know Jesus, if it's been about church, if it's just about religion to you, church doesn't work. Jesus works. The church is his family, and we come together and we're better together, but if you're just looking at church to solve your problems, you're going to be disappointed. It's not about religion. It's not about rules or relationships. It's about relationships. It's not about regulations or rituals. It's about relationships with others, but first of all with Jesus. If you've never come to know Him, today's your day. So how do I do that? It's really simple. Jesus, I'm a sinner. I believe that what you did on the cross was for me. I don't understand all that. But I'm giving as much as I understand of me to as much as I understand of you right now. And I'm trusting by faith that what you did was for me. I'm claiming you as my Savior and Lord. And then you need to tell somebody about it. We're going to pray in just a moment, and and you're going to have that chance to just pray silently right where you sit. And if you pray that prayer and ask Jesus to come into your heart, your life can change for all eternity. And you need to tell somebody about it. Find somebody here with the I can help tag, the usher tag, or whatever. Just find somebody who's smiling and tell them. Tell me, email me, you know, whatever. Let us know that because we're in this together. We want to help. If you want somebody to pray with you afterwards, then find like one of the praise team. There'll be people in the back. Find somebody, say, would you pray with me? And they will. And now you're sitting there thinking, oh, somebody's going to ask me to pray with them. (laughs) Wouldn't that be cool to realize that you are the one that helps somebody find joy and hope? No matter what you feel today, Joy is possible if you choose it. I'd like to ask you to bow your heads as we pray. Father, I know that in your presence is joy. I know that it comes from, first of all, having that relationship with you, and then it comes from spending time with you. So for those who already know you, my prayer, Father, is that they would, they would be in your presence that it would not be about some ritualistic thing. It would be about coming into your presence, reading your word, studying your word, memorizing your word, obeying your word, being a part of that, hearing your word. We do that on Sundays, but we know that's not enough. We need to spend time with you every day, speak to you through prayer, listen to you, speak to us through your word. And Father, for those who have never experienced that, it's just been about church or, or religion. I pray that today would be the day that that, as that little light comes on, that they would realize that little light that's coming on is you. Your spirit, you're whispering in their ear, this is what I brought you to hear. That in simple faith, you can turn to Jesus and have your life change. It doesn't mean everything will be good. It means in in the midst of everything, you can still have joy and hope. That we can choose joy. Father, my prayer is that anybody who has never made that decision yet would today make that decision to follow you, claim you as Lord and Savior. We love you and thank you for what you're doing here. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand for the closing song. His love is relentless.
fighting for the furthest heart, that might be you. He will never give up on you. So don't give up on yourself. If you don't know Jesus, today is your day. In simple faith, with your own words from your own heart, just say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I believe that you died to pay for my sin. I want that. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for never giving up on us. I pray that, that um, whatever you're, you're, you're asking us to do today, that our response to you would be yes. Whether it's to get closer to you, to follow you, to exercise faith in some area, whether it's to, to come to you for the first time, that the answer would be yes. That I, I don't know all the answers, Jesus, but my answer to you today is yes. And that in simple faith we come to you and our lives are forever changed. Not only eternal joy forever, but abundant life today in the midst of even all of the stuff we go through. Thank you, and we love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.